Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we kind of take this slow walk through a well-known, beloved passage of Scripture, one that perhaps is often misunderstood, misapplied, 1 Corinthians 13, we will again read verses 4 through 8, or 4 through the first phrase of verse 8. Love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis offers the following insight on love. He says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. I think these are helpful words. I think they're right on. I think they are an appropriate reflection on what Paul is trying to distill to us about love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a reminder to us that when we're talking about love, when we are talking about this this highest expression of, of the Christian life toward God, toward others, we're talking about something that's really deep and profound. It is a love that I think is, is action-oriented, and, and I think it's a love that our culture just doesn't really understand that well. And here's the odd part of that, because as has been said before, our culture loves love. It's everywhere, right? I mean, this is going to sound odd, and perhaps you could take it down whatever stream you'd like, but our culture spends multi-billions of dollars on love in some form or fashion, right? Whether appropriately or inappropriately, love makes a lot of money. People talk about it. People say it. How many times a day does somebody use the word love? How many times in a lifetime will people use the word love? So it is definitely a common feature, but is it really understood? Again, I would say our culture more often than not likes to describe love more as an emotion, as a feeling, maybe even as a particular disposition towards someone. Love is something that you can fall into and then fall out of. 
And I think if we were to really be honest, at least in a lot of cases, love is something we are more likely to reciprocate. But maybe we're not that great at initiating it. But Paul's words here, this chapter that defines for us so clearly what the Bible expects of love, really kind of cuts through all that. It cuts through what are the cultural trappings of this. It cuts through what are kind of the the emotional features that we often ascribe to love. And it describes just what Lewis described there. It is something that is action-oriented. It is a decision to act toward people in a certain way, regardless of how they act toward you. And now for the church in Corinth, this is a big deal. Keeping in mind that Paul is giving us this classic text in the midst of talking about spiritual gifts and talking about a church that is really dysfunctional when it comes to spiritual gifts. And so Paul is using this as an opportunity to remind them that when it comes to ministry, when it comes to using your gifts, really when it comes to any relationship, and particularly in the church, I mean, what, what is paramount upon us is that we would love. If everything we do is done to the, to the highest degree of our ability, but done without love, Paul's already told us it, it's meaningless. It, in fact, Paul would say it, it's lovelier for you to walk around clanging symbols than for you to do the right thing but without love. It's really a striking statement, isn't it? And yet this is what he's getting at. And so we've spent a lot of time and we're not even halfway done with what is a 16-point sermon going through these verses in 1 Corinthians 4 through 8a, as Paul now lays out for us here 16 descriptions slash definitions of love. Now, we've kind of synthesized that a little bit. I'm breaking this down into what are four basic categories. I think Paul lays out for us kind of four categories under which he then makes various points of clarification. So when it comes to being able to understand love so that we might apply it appropriately to our lives and to our relationships with others, there, there are these four categories to consider. And so we've, we've already looked at the first one, uh, which is love's reaction. Love's reaction. And then that's in verse 13, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. So we talked about patience and kindness. And then we got to the meat of it, the the majority of Paul's description of love here is done in such a way that he gives us eight descriptions of what love is not. In other words, he describes it by giving us the negative, which can be a very helpful way to define terms. He tells us what love is, it's patient and it's kind, and then the next eight phrases, Paul then says, love is not, is not, is not, is not, is not. He he then lays out for us then what it what it doesn't look like. And in many ways, these eight phrases are perhaps the most convicting of any of them. They, they really are. And if you've taken time to read through this text, if you've done what I've encouraged you to do, put your name you know, kind of over the word love there and see if that describes you. All right? List out these, eight, these 16 qualities and say, put your name at the top of the piece of paper and read each one with the word is. All right? Uh, does, this, does this describe who you are? Is this how you relate to people? So we're in the midst of this second section, which is then love's rejection. In other words, what, 
Paul gives us the, the attitudes, the actions that love, genuine love, would reject. And we've looked at three. Love rejects jealousy, boasting, and arrogance. Again, if you go back to verse 4, love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. So, jealousy, boasting, and arrogance. All right, so let's keep going here. So we're going to chop off a few more pieces as we look at Paul's description here. So number four, our first one tonight, and this is where your blanks will begin if you want to fill in the blanks. Love rejects rudeness. Love rejects rudeness. I don't know if that's a word, but it's up there. All right, so that's it. All right, you're going to write it down. I don't think it has a squiggly line under it when I typed it. So, love rejects being impolite. Notice the phrase, verse 5. And what I'll do, by the way, even though at this point, Paul stops inserting, really in the, it's in the phrase before, at the end of verse 4, Paul stops inserting the word love. And now, now love is the assumed subject uh, of the sentence. But, and so I'll probably just state it that way. But if you go look in verse 5, it doesn't begin by saying, love does not behave rudely, but, so I'm inserting that. Love does not behave rudely. Now, in some ways, that kind of sounds just what, it, what you think it sounds like. I mean, Paul is telling us that one of the negative definitions, if you want to use that term, Love is not going to be rude. Love is not going to be impolite. The question is, what does he mean here? In other words, when we hear the word impolite, or you could say, you could use the positive, love is polite. You could even use this word. This may even be a helpful way to say it. Love is well-mannered. Now, when you hear that phrase, though, what do you think? When you hear the word well-mannered or good manners, and you hear the word polite, well, what do we normally think of? Well, we may think of things like, uh, you know, we teach our children to say, yes, sir, no, sir, right? We might think of things like table etiquette when we think of being polite and well-mannered. When, when you eat soup, you, you scoop it this way, right? And then you, I think that's right. Anyway, all right, I think, I, yeah, I've been trained. All right, so, you know, what, what fork do you use for the salad? Uh, I don't know. I just want to know what you're feeding me for dessert. Okay, so these are, these are ideas we may think of. We think of manners. And, and listen, I was, I'm one of three boys, and I'm raising three boys. So there's a lot of issues related to manners. We're not going to state publicly. All right, okay, I'm just not going to do it. We're not going to do it. It's Wednesday night. Normally, we're a little more informal. We're not that informal. Nonetheless, this is the kind of thing that we often think of. Now, Paul, though, I think is taking this a bit further. When he says, love does not behave rudely, and I've given you a definition here, to behave indecently or in a shameful way. And really, it's the second part that I think then, then really gives us the essence of what Paul's saying to defy accepted moral and social norms without regard for others, or with no regard, with no regard for how your actions in public or in church 
or even in one-on-one relationships. That that the one who behaves rudely is the one who just doesn't seem to live according to the accepted standards of society. Now, let let me ask you, have you ever run into anybody like this? And if you're shaking your head no, then that might mean you're the one. All right, in other words, you may be the one that tends to do this. We've, we've, all, we've all been with those folks who we think, man, doesn't, doesn't he or she realize this is, you're in public? Let me ask you this way. Have you ever walked into Walmart? I don't need to say anymore, right? I don't need to say anything else. Have you ever walked in, seen what's being worn, the, be- the, beha- the behavior. Have you ever seen that and thought, don't you realize this is a public place, right? In other words, there, there are folks out there who just don't seem to behave according to the accepted standards and norms. Now, what I think Paul is doing here, though, is very important as it pertains to the church because this concept here, love does not behave rudely, says, here's the underlying principle. If I'm really going to demonstrate love as the Bible is describing love here, this means that when it comes to my public interactions, you matter more than I do. I'm going to let that lay on your heart for a minute. Because you know who's terrible at this? Americans. We're terrible at this. We're good at... I've got freedom of speech. I'm going to say what I want to whoever I want, and I don't care what they think about it, right? Who are they to tell me how I should curtail my behavior? You ever heard this said? It's a free country. Do what I want. Maybe a free country. That's just not a biblical principle, right? In other words, this concept of love, and, and it'll really combine with some of these other ideas. I mean, it really is making the point that when it comes to my interactions with people, I should be very concerned about the well-being of others. I should, be, I should be thoughtful about how my words and my actions are impacting others. Now, don't misunderstand this. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't stand up for truth, nor am I suggesting that just because somebody else calls your behavior rude, that that necessarily means that it's rude. In other words, the, the intolerance of the tolerance police in our country who would say, if I were to dare share the gospel with somebody in public, I, I have no doubt that, that the majority of the, the liberals in our country would say, that's rude. All right? So we're not talking about that, but we are talking about a particular manner of living, particular mannerisms, the way in which we just conduct ourselves in public. Paul is saying that true love... Genuine love does not behave rudely. Now again, put this in the context of the church. What's going on in Corinth? you got, you got these guys who are speaking in tongues or prophesying. They're leaders. Perhaps they're well known. Some of them were even very big on the fact that they knew Peter or they knew Apollos or they knew Paul. Apparently, from the beginning of the letter, some of them might have even known Jesus Himself. So this is significant. Paul says, look, part of the problem in your church is you people who think you are the best thing since sliced bread are telling everybody you think you're the best thing since sliced bread. Stop it. 
Stop behaving rudely. Stop assuming that what matters most in the room is you. So again, the rude person is the one who just kind of defies these societal norms, these expectations of the way that we should act with one another. I mean, is it a a stretch to say that our culture is becoming increasingly more rude? Is that, does anybody disagree with, I mean, you can disagree with me later, all right, if you you would, but doesn't it seem that way? Doesn't it seem like there's just kind of this general uh, politeness that just, uh, now, some may say, well, the politeness that existed before was fake politeness. All right, maybe. But I'll take fake politeness to outright rudeness any day, all right, right? I mean, if I go up to a, somebody working at a particular location, that I would rather them pretend to be polite than to be rude to me. Anybody else, all right? In other words, yes, even those who put on a show, that's better. I'd argue that's better. Some may say, well, isn't that hypocritical? I don't think so. I think if you're, if you're trying to live in a certain way for the sake of other people, I just think that's a good thing. So I think we could do well to think carefully about this. How is, that, how is our behavior? Are, are, we, are we polite? Are we well-mannered in our relationships with others, in our relationships out in the world, in the way that we're just kind of living out our, our Christian life? Is it, is it a well-mannered behavior? All right, next one. Number five, I guess. Second one for tonight. Love also rejects selfishness. Selfishness. Notice the next phrase in verse 5. Love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. That's a great way to put this, right? And I think we recognize, all, you know, again, almost just right off, you, you don't need to do a whole lot of uh, deep work in the languages to figure this one out. It is just what it, what it says. What is, who is the person who seeks its own? To use like a popular phrase, it's looking out for number one. That kind of language. Paul is saying love doesn't do that. Love, love, the truly loving person is not relating to others in such a way that the number one expectation is that you meet my needs. If I get around to meeting your needs, great. But first... It's all about me. I'm going to get what I deserve, what I want to have. And then if I can get around to anything else, then that's good. So Paul says love rejects selfishness. Here's how I think you can define this. To be consumed with one's own needs, in particular to the detriment of the needs of others, to assume my needs are most important. Now, in sharing this kind of a concept, which by the way is, is, is littered throughout the New Testament... <laughs> I mean, this, this kind of language is all, is all throughout the New Testament in, in one way or another. I mean, this, this describes Jesus Himself, right? This is the nature of His own love for us, who, who did, not, did not seek His own. He did the will of His Father, and He came not to be served, but to serve. So what would be the opposite of this? Well, love is selfless. Love is selfless. Now, usually along this line at this point, somebody may want to say, I mean, you're not going to say it in public because, you know, we, we're not going to do it out in public. But maybe on the ride home to your spouse, 
Maybe just in your own head you have conversations with yourself. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. You do that. I do that. You do it. I know you do. All right? I know it. Well, do, do I, shouldn't I be concerned with my needs? I mean, we can, we can have these moments where, where we want to kind of wrestle with what God's Word says here and say, well, if, if, I, if I don't care about my needs, well, I'm just going to get run over. I'm just, I'm just going to be a doormat. Everybody's going to take advantage of me if I live this way. Well, my first question would be, did anyone ever take advantage of Jesus? Did Jesus ever remain silent when treated unfairly? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I, listen, I, I, know, I know this is not easy. And, and let, let, me, <laughs> let me tell you. All right, so moment of confession. It's good for the soul. Somebody says, all right, I, I am, you all know this, I'm the baby boy. And I admit this. I admit that most babies of the family have it real good. I had it really good. I got away with all kinds of stuff. I don't know if my parents were better parents or just tired parents, all right? Maybe a little bit of both. It's like, okay, the other two did these dumb things and they're still alive it's just not worth it. All right? In other words, I'm pretty sure he's going to be fine. So, in other words, as the baby of the family, I can tell you I can be prone to loving me some me. Okay? All right? I'll tell you that. I can. I don't do it, I don't necessarily do it like deceptively and aggressively. But I can tell you, man, it is here in my heart. Very concerned about getting my way. Very concerned. I'm not saying it's a positive quality about myself, all right? But it is, it, it, it is, it is. I can see selfishness in me. And the truth is, I don't think there's anybody out there really, I mean, when, when somebody brings up this problem to say, well, if, if, I, if I live life like this, if I live life not seeking my own, but being more concerned about the needs of others, then what about my needs? Listen, I don't think you really have to intentionally think about meeting your needs. I think you're going to do it. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. I don't think we're going to sacrifice. I mean, maybe there are some figures out there who did. You know, you might say, well, Lottie Moon did it. Right. Keep adding to that list if you'd like. It's going to be a short one. Okay? In other words, there's not not many like that. Most of us don't. We don't have a problem necessarily with meeting our needs. And I'll suggest it's not wrong to make sure you have food and a place to sleep. All right? These are not wrong things. But what Paul is describing here is a particular attitude toward one another in the church where my first concern in this relationship should not be what you can do for me. I think that's what was going on in Corinth. I think they were very concerned about what everybody else could do for them. Paul's, Paul's saying love doesn't seek its own like that. Love is not selfish. Love seeks the best for others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, this will give you the balance. For those who are concerned, well, if I don't get my needs met, I'm going to be walked over. So Paul kind of gives us a balance here. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, 
but also for the interest of others. But you can't take that verse 4 out of context, all right? Because this is, this is then the prelude to one of the greatest texts in the New Testament about somebody who gave up his rights and privileges for the sake of others. This leads into the great hymn about Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, emptied Himself, becoming in the likeness of man, even to the point of dying on the cross. So the precursor to that great, uh, what many think was an early hymn that the church would sing, Paul, Paul gives this, this statement to the folks in Philippi. So don't, don't do things out of selfish ambition or conceit. Esteem others better than yourself. You're going to look out for your own interest. But, but in, in that, make sure you are looking out for the interest of others. The spirit of selfishness could, could definitely rear up in any of us. And I, so I think, I think Paul's concern here is well-founded. I mean, is, isn't it true? Selfishness is probably... One of the root sins. You know, it's often stated that pride is the chief sin. And, and what, what is then the fruit of pride more often than not? Selfishness. Selfishness. Because pride puts me first. My needs are most important. And then the result then is going to be pursuing a particular style of life that seeks to meet my needs. Make sure I get what I want. So, so love, is, love is not rude. And love is also not selfish. All right, the next one. Love rejects anger. Love rejects anger. Notice that next phrase, verse 5. Love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. I use the word anger here, but I recognize anger is kind of a word like love. It can be used in a lot of different contexts, right? In other words, we can have different levels. Just like I can say, uh, we've used this kind of illustration before, you know, you can say, I love God, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love ice cream, right? These are, these are not equal things, okay? I promise you they're not. I pro- okay, these are not. These are not. I don't love ice cream as much as I love my family, okay? So these are not equal things. So we use the word love in a different way. We can also use the word anger in a different Anger, angry. We can use that word in a variety of ways. I mean, we, we can say how evil in the world makes us angry. Or we can say they were out of my favorite ice cream, and it made me angry. I mentioned ice cream twice, all right? So, so those, those aren't the same thing, right? I mean, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't compare those and say these are equal kinds. So another word, anger, kind of needs to be fleshed out. So here's another word, I, I think, what Paul's getting at here. And it's mentioned here in the definition, but you could write it out beside it. And that is irritable. Irritable. Quite frankly, you might would rather me keep the word anger and not mention the word irritable. Because maybe we can convince ourselves we're not angry people. 
but is there anybody here who never is irritable? So that is a little different, right? And in particular, here's what I think Paul's talking about. To be easily irritated or frustrated, and I think this is connected with the previous idea, you know, love does not seek its own, but the person who seeks his own is often going to be irritable because the rest of the world doesn't always work that way. The rest of the world doesn't always care if you're, that guy's needs get met or not because they're looking to meet their own needs. All right, So, so this, that individual can find themselves becoming easily irritated because they're not getting their own way. Now, there's another word we've already talked about, and this shows the beauty of this text, because Paul began by giving us two words of positive definition. It's really a brilliant text, isn't it? Paul said love is patient, and love is kind. You know, I say we've got 16 definitions of love, but is there anything under those two words that you can't put all these other phrases? Isn't everything else really just a play off of patience and kindness? I think so. I think the rest of them are just kind of a play off of patience and kindness in one way or another. And what is this one? Love is not provoked. Why is love not provoked? Well, because love suffers long. Because love is patient. Love is patient. And so, so Paul Man, I just, some of this stuff, don't you wish sometimes you just mark stuff out? Say, man, I don't like that, all right? So love, love is, is not provoked. Love does not become easily irritated. Now again, I, I don't want this to be confused with what would be righteous forms of indignation. There could be forms of anger that are appropriate, right? Jesus, Jesus was, was angry when he turned the tables over in the temple. Righteous indignation describes him being angry when he stands at the tomb of Lazarus and he sees the, the despair of death hanging in the air and says he and it says he's ang- he's angry about that. So so there there could be expressions of of anger that are that are perfectly righteous and, and legitimate. It's not what he's getting at here. He's talking about the ways that we might react to people when they don't behave toward us the way we want them to. And again, that's why love is patient. Because love is not provoked. You know what I thought of? I, th- I thought of a phrase. We've all heard it. We've all, perhaps we've even used it. If I, if I were to use the phrase, you poked the bear. You know what I mean, Right? Yeah, you know, you know exactly what I mean. If you, if you poke the bear, that means you push one too many times, all right? Uh, that, that means that the growl is coming out. That, that means uh, that there, there's now going to be a reaction that is both unhealthy and unhelpful, all right? To everybody involved. Now, I think there are some folks that anger is a particular weakness. In fact, I would say of, of folks who are really in bondage to sin, I mean really in bondage, like they, they really struggle with certain sins, one for sure is lust, All right, that's a, that's, that's a big one, but I, I'd say next to it, I have a lot of folks throughout my 20 years of being a pastor who've asked me, how do I deal with my anger? I think anger is addictive. I, 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 think, I think people can enjoy blowing up 
I think there can be this weird release of endorphins when people get angry. It's odd, all right? But I think people can like it. I think, I, I think it, it can be a really damaging and unhealthy quality. And I think some folks, and it could be somebody, some folks in here, who find that, that this, this uh, is, is really a weakness of theirs. But the truth is, I think all of us can face this problem. That we, we can react with irritability. And it could come on for a variety of reasons. Some of them are physical. I mean, you know, I, I would just encourage you to be mindful of, you know, uh, how much sleep you got, how, you know, are you hungry? Uh, you know, have, have you had a string of problems throughout the day and now you get to number 10 and, boy, pray for the person who is the 10th problem you face, right? Because then that's, that's when it comes out. Uh, if I'm on long distance traveling and, man, there's, eventually there's going to be the last straw of the guy who pulls out in front of me in the left-hand lane. All right, I'm just telling you, that's going to happen, and my spirit is broken, and it's frustrating, and I can get irritable, all right? So this, this is just look for those, these triggers here. But I think this phrase, this phrase, I think, requires us to think very carefully. Because you can't, again, you can't escape it. can't wiggle out of it. Love is not provoked. This, by the way, is very clear uh, in Scripture, we got some verses uh, that say this. Jesus himself perhaps illustrates this the best. Uh, so if we go on to the next slide, I think I have them up there. They should be on your, um, on your notes there on the back. So 1 Peter 2, 21-23, For to this you were called, in other words, called to suffering. In particular, Peter's, the context there is Peter is talking about uh, how servants should react to their, to their master, uh, in particular, and he's, uh, there's a couple other, of course, texts in Paul where he says similar things. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously." In other words, if anyone could have blown up at anybody, perhaps it could have been the only sinless person to ever live who was being accused of blasphemy against God. If anybody could have stood up in the midst of a group that was walking by and slapping him in the face and literally pulling out chunks of his beard accusing him of the worst forms of heresy that any Jew could be accused of? A man who could have called the hosts of heaven to burn them to pieces said nothing. Said nothing. And listen to me, brothers and sisters, who live in a system that elevates having a jury of your peers, which I'm not against, all right, okay? Having your day in court. When Jesus' day in court came, He said nothing. Now, you could just chalk that up and say, well, He had a unique and special kind of ministry. He was going to the cross. That's different, Pastor. It would be, had Peter not been inspired by the Spirit to write this and say, this is your example. This is your example. 
When he was reviled, did not revile. When he was threatened, did not threaten back. But instead trusted to the judge. The judgment that should come. (laughs) It's another one of those verses that you wish weren't in there. That's tough to do, is it not? What a challenge is that? And yet, that, that is what, how love is being described here. Let's go on to the next one, Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. We're familiar with this, Sermon on the Mount. How about this in Proverbs that make it short and sweet? Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. Keep away from angry, short-tempered people. Or you will learn to be like them and endanger your soul. In Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up dissension. In other words, we have very clearly, you know, what, what is the, the, the negative picture of, of this kind of overreaction, this kind of, of losing of temper. Now, here's what someone may say. Pastor, that's kind of who I am. It's kind of wired that way. I lose my temper, but it's over with and it's quick. I lose it and then, you know, then, then it's over with and done. It's what happens to a nuclear bomb. It's quick and it's over. And it's unbelievably destructive. It's unbelievably destructive. My guess is some of our greatest regrets are connected the times we got the angriest. That, that's just anecdotal. I don't know if that for sure. My guess is you look back on your life and you think of the things that you said, all right, some of the things that you said that you regret. My guess is it's because you said them in anger. That's just my guess. So this, this, this is, again, a convicting kind of text. But let's, let's, let's make sure we come, come back to the place we should come back to in any kind of text like this. Because we are, we are mindful of the fact we are still sinful people. We, are still, we still have a flesh. And the good news is, is that we can love because He first loved us. I mean, the good news for all of this is that the expectation to express this kind of love is not found in you just kind of really grip, you know, gritting your teeth and, and figuring it out truth is, this is the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first fruit mentioned? <laughs> fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the first one mentioned because it is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is the work of the Gospel in us. So if you find yourself struggling with these, the place to begin is not with your own personal will. In other words, you can't will yourself into no longer being selfish or no longer being irritable. You've got to bring that back to the cross. You've got to come back to the Gospel. You've got to bring that back to a Savior. And you, in prayer and in His Word, remind yourself this is what Jesus died for. And the love of God has been shed abroad on your heart. So that the capacity to love, as Paul outlines here, is 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 something for us because of what Christ has done for us through the gospel and because through the Spirit we can, we can live this way. So I just I want us to keep that in mind because really these are, very, these are very heavy principles and points here as we think about what it means to love, what it means to not love, 
And I think it's good as we go through this, I'll do it more than even just tonight, remind ourselves, again, that the, the, the means by which we fulfill this expectation is through the gospel itself. All right, so next week we'll keep going, uh, working our way then carefully through each of these phrases uh, so we can continue to build what is Paul's portrait of genuine love. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for gathering us. We again thank you for time in prayer, time in your word, and we do thank you for your gospel. We thank you that in Christ uh, we have all that we need for life and godliness, and that means uh, the ability to recognize the ways in which we fail to love, and we have been given the resources that enable us to love. So Father, we pray that you by your Spirit would, would enable us to see ourselves for who we are as we look in the mirror of this word, seeing our reflection in, in this description of love, seeing the ways in which we fall short, and then coming to you, uh, God, asking that you would continue uh, to, to bring the, the promise of the gospel to bear on our lives as, as you continue to fashion us into Christ's likeness, that, that we might be patient and kind, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be rude, that we wouldn't be selfish, that we wouldn't be irritable. Lord, that the expression of our love would be that which is Christ-like, which has been put in us through your glorious work of the gospel in us. I thank you for these who've come. Lord, I pray your blessing upon them. I pray each and everyone here would know your hand uh, of providence, leading and guiding. I pray that you grant wisdom, uh, and even at times wisdom that that is beyond that which is natural to us, uh, which comes to us via your word as, as your spirit illuminates this truth so that we might live faithful lives in a dark world. Use us, Lord, not only to project uh, the image of Christ, but give us boldness that we may share with others Christ crucified and resurrected, and in Him there is the forgiveness of sins. Gather your people back together again that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.